after he had come down from the hill, he was followed by a great crowd. And now a leper approached him, bowed low and said, Sir, if only you will, you can cleanse me. Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said, Indeed I will, be clean again. And his leprosy was cured immediately. Then Jesus said to him, Be sure you tell nobody, but go and show yourself to the priest and make the offering laid down by Moses for your cleansing. That will certify the cure. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came up to ask his help. Sir, he said, a boy of mine lies at home paralyzed and racked with pain. Jesus said, I will come and cure him. But the centurion replied, Sir, who am I to have you under my roof? You need only say the word and the boy will be cured. I know, for I am myself under orders with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes to another, come here, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard him with astonishment and said to the people who were following him, I tell you this, nowhere, even in Israel, have I found such faith. Many, I tell you, will come from east and west to feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But those who were born to the kingdom will be driven out into the dark, the place of wailing and grinding of teeth. Then Jesus said to the, to the centurion, Go home now, because of your faith, so let it be. At that moment, the boy recovered. Jesus then went to Peter's house and found Peter's mother-in-law in bed with fever. So he took her by the hand, the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening fell, they brought to him many who were possessed by devils, and he drove the spirits out with a word, and healed all who were ill. To make good the prophecy of Isaiah, he took away our illnesses, and lifted our diseases from us. At the sight of the crowd surrounding him, Jesus gave word to cross to the other shore. The doctor of the law came up and said, Master, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have their holes, the birds their roosts, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another man, one of his disciples, said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father first. Jesus replied, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead. Jesus then got into the boat and his disciples followed. All at once a great storm arose on the, lake, on the lake till the waves were breaking right over the boat. But he went on sleeping. So they came and woke him up, crying, Save us, Lord, we're sinking. Why are you such cowards, he said. How little faith you have. Then he stood up and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a dead calm. The men were astonished at what had happened and exclaimed, What sort of man is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. When he reached the other side in the country of the Gadarenes, he was met by two men who came out from the tombs. They were possessed by devils, and so violent that no one dared pass that way. You son of God, they shouted, what do you want with us? Have you come here to torment us before our time? In the distance, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the devils begged him, if you drive us out, send us into that herd of pigs. Be gone, he said. Then they came out and went into the pigs. The whole herd rushed over the edge into the lake and perished in the water. The men in charge of them took to their heels and made for the town, 
where they told the whole story and what had happened to the madmen. Thereupon the whole town came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the district and go. So he got into the boat and crossed over and came to his own town. And now some men brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the men, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. At this some of the lawyers said to themselves, This is blasphemous talk. Jesus read their thoughts and said, Why do you harbour these evil thoughts? Is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and walk? But to convince you that the Son of Man has the right on earth to forgive sins, he now addressed the paralytic. Stand up, take your bed, and go home. Thereupon the man got up and went off home. The people were filled with awe at the sight and praised God for granting such authority to men. As he passed on from there, Jesus saw a man named Matthew at his seat in the custom house, Mm -hmm. and he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. When Jesus was at table in the house, many bad characters, uh, tax gatherers and others, were seated with him and his disciples. The Pharisees noticed this and said to his disciples, Why is it that your master eats with tax gatherers and sinners? Jesus heard them and said, It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what that text means. I require mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to invite virtuous people, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him with the question, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? Jesus replied, Can you expect the bridegroom's friends to go mourning while the bridegroom is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. That will be the time for them to fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old coat, for then the patch tears away from the coat and leaves a bigger hole. No more do you put new wine into old wineskins. If you do, the skins burst, and then the wine runs out, and the skins are spoilt. No, you put new wine into fresh skins. Then both are preserved. Even as he spoke, there came a president of the synagogue who bowed low before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus rose and went with him, and so did his disciples. Then a woman who had suffered from hemorrhages for twelve years came up from behind and touched the edge of his cloak, for she said to herself, If I can only touch his cloak, I shall be cured. But Jesus turned and saw her and said, My daughter, your faith has cured you. And from that moment she recovered. When Jesus arrived at the president's house and saw the flute players and the general commotion, he said, Be off. The girl is not dead. She is asleep. But they only laughed at him. But when everyone had been turned out, he went into the room and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. This story became the talk of the country round about. As he passed on, Jesus was followed by two blind men who cried out, Son of David, have pity on us. And when he had gone indoors, they came to him. Jesus asked, Do you believe that I have the power to do what you want? Yes, sir, they said. Then he touched their eyes and said, As you have believed, so let it be. And their sight was restored. Jesus said to them sternly, See that no one hears about this. But as soon as they had gone out, they talked about him all over the countryside.
They were on their way out when a man was brought to him who was dumb and possessed by a devil. The devil was cast out and the patient recovered his speech. Filled with amazement, the onlookers said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out devils by the prince of devils. Now this evening, if you will turn um, to Matthew and open it at chapter 8 and the first verse, we come to the um, fifth division, subdivision, the fifth subdivision of this second major division of the Gospel according to Matthew. We have been dealing with <clears throat> the proclamation of the kingdom by the king. And you will remember that last week we spoke of the beginning of the king's ministry and then the royal call of um, Peter, Andrew, James and John and then the initial public manifestation of the king's authority and then you will remember we spent most of our time upon what we called the manifesto of the kingdom. <coughs> now this evening we come to this next subdivision, the fifth, and we have entitled it the authority of the king. The authority of the king. Now, the word that we have used here, authority, we find in chapter 9 and verse 6. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. Authority on earth to forgive sins. In chapter 10 and verse um, 1, we read, And he called unto him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of disease and all manner of sickness. Now, in the original language of the New Testament, there are two words that we find used a lot, translated by our English word, power. And if you look in your authorized version, you will discover that here you have the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive the sins. And then you will see that he gave them power to um, car over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal all manner of uh, disease and all manner of sickness. Now, the word used here is the word that denotes the exercise, the right exercise of power, the right to exercise power, the power of government, the power of rule. This is the idea. It's not so much the thing itself as the authority that lies behind it. Now, the Lord Jesus is not only the power of God, that is the actual ability and energy of God to do something, the Lord Jesus is also given God's authority to act. And this is the idea behind this word authority, the authority of the king. It's not just that he's got power, he's got energy, 
but he has the right to exercise power. He has authority from God, his divine authority, with which he can settle situations and, uh, uh, and uh, fulfill the will of God. Now that's quite important because power is divine authority. Some people think that power is just simply power, a lot of energy. And then along with that they think it must of necessity be a lot of noise. Or must be a lot of sort of, um, uh, uh, sort of striving, there's got to be an awful lot that's visible. Now this is quite foreign sometimes to the New Testament. Sometimes in the New Testament you will discover that power is in fact uh, um, attended with much that is physical and outwardly seen. But often as we've read here, look at the Lord Jesus. Effortless authority. A word here, a touch there. Just not many words. Not great anguish, not great striving. Not histrionics. Just simply a word, quite calmly. I don't suppose at times he even had to lift his voice. Because it is interesting that two or three times he took them into a room and spoke to them privately. So evidently he didn't shout. And some people's idea of power, I'm afraid I, this can be laid at my door too, is that you've got to lift up your voice and really speak as loudly as it is possible to speak. Otherwise it's not power. But you see, that, dear child of God, can just be an excuse for the absence of real power. Because sometimes the more noise we make and the more histrionics there are, the more sort of dramatic uh, sort of display, more dramatics there are, um, the more it seems, the more gullible and naive people are taken in. But in actual fact, power is divine authority. Now if a man has divine authority, he doesn't have to have any dramatics or any histrionics. There's just got to be a word, there's just got to be a touch, and immediately the thing is done. Just as simple as that. Now that's what we're considering now. The authority of the king. The Lord Jesus' power lay in his authority. He had divine authority. And because he had divine authority, he could exercise power again and again and again. So often the miracles are called in the Gospels powers. Now that's not this other word we're thinking, it's the other word. Images, powers. Something that can be actually seen, it's done. There it is in substance. It's done. But the Lord Jesus could in fact perform such miracles and such powers and such mighty deeds because he had divine authority. Behind it was divine authority. Now, we have seen already the divine authority of Christ in his teaching. If you look at the last um, uh, verses of chapter 7 you will see it says in verse 
28, 29, when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. His teaching was with divine authority. Now, divine authority doesn't just mean that someone's got legally a kind of signature behind them, but it means that there is that something that you, you cannot explain, but you put your finger upon. There is a divine ratification behind it. There is divine authority behind it. The Lord Jesus didn't teach like the scribe, sort of muttering and sort of, well, no, now it could be this, it could be that, you know, this possibility, that possibility, this says here, this commentary, that commentary, this book, that book, this authority, that authority. He just simply said, you have heard said, I say unto you. And they were astonished. For he didn't teach them as the scribes, with all their multitudinous authorities. But he ta taught them as one who had authority. Now we've seen that the Lord, we've seen something of this authority in his teaching, in the, in the manifesto of uh, the kingdom. Now we see it in his work. I have entitled this section the authority of the king although it could be called the authority of the kingdom it could be called the authority of the kingdom of heaven but you see and this is an important point again the authority of the kingdom of heaven is in fact centered expressed and realized in the Lord Jesus Christ to all intents and purposes here the Lord Jesus is the kingdom of heaven and therefore the authority of the kingship of heaven is simply the authority of God's king. And it is surely the same with us as we shall see. Now I have subdivided this again into three. And the first um, section um, is from verse 1 of chapter 8 to verse 34 of chapter 9, the whole passage that we read in the New English Bible uh, this evening. And I have entitled this, The Authority of God's King Manifested. The manifestation of the authority of God's King. One thing for him to be born King, one thing for him to be anointed King, now we see his authority manifested. And by that word manifested we mean concretely displayed, concretely expressed. Here we have it. In these verses we have ten examples of miracles and everyone shows the authority of the king. Now I'm quite sure that if you listened to that rendering in the modern English, in the New English Bible, you could not but fail to be impressed by the authority. The simplicity of it all, the effortlessness of it all, the way the Lord Jesus just stepped into a situation and with one word it was settled. Sometimes it was a lifetime of bondage, a lifetime of difficulty, one word from the king and it was settled. And I do not believe that in the Lord's ministry there was any of this going back a few days later. Otherwise the whole country would have been filled with reports of people who had had emotional healings and so on. And a bit later everyone would have said, well it doesn't work. 
Never once in the whole New Testament is there a single instance of a person that we know of who was healed one moment and unhealed a few days later. We haven't got it. There's not even a rumour, not even the width of a rumour in the whole of the New Testament. For what God does, he does. And the work of the Lord is always forever. Well, we have ten examples of miracles. Here they are. We have the leper. We have the centurion's servant boy. We have Peter's mother-in-law and others. Um, there's um, not only his mother-in-law, but it says that evening they brought to him many who were possessed with a demon. She must have been a very nice mother-in-law because she brought them all into the home evidently or at least allowed them to all be outside the home. So that's Peter's mother-in-law and a large number of others. That's one of the ten. Then we have the storm on the lake. A different kind of miracle but nevertheless a miracle. Then we have the two demon-possessed ones. Then we have the paralytic brought by his friends. Then we have the synagogue ruler's daughter. Then we have the woman with the issue of blood. Then we have the two blind men. And lastly, we have the dumb demoniac. <coughs> these are the ten examples given in these verses. And in every single one, we see the manifestation of the king's authority. That's the heart of the whole uh, matter. I have already said to you, note the effortless authority of Christ. Well, now take chapter 8, verse 3. Listen to this. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was healed. Verse 12. No, that's not right. Verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, be it done for you as you have believed. And the, the servant was healed at that very moment. No long prayer meeting. Just effortless authority. Uh, verse 15. Uh, he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose up and served him. Now, that wasn't just a flu cold. Um, it evidently was a fever that had completely laid her out. Verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. I take it it was something like begone, or out. Just a word. Not words, but just a word. Cast them out with a word, and healed all who were sick. Verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds of the sea, and there was a great calm. Immediate. Verse 32. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the swine. Just one word. Go. Chapter 9, verse 10. Verse 20, I'm sorry. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Uh, verse 22, Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. We can go on and go on. Verse 25, 
When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Effortless authority. Simply effortless authority. No dramatics. Nothing, no noise. No great palaver. Effortless authority. The authority of the king. Now, it is very important that we understand this authority um, as seen and manifested in the Lord Jesus. Very important. Uh, there are only two passages in this whole section, this sub-section here, that I've entitled The Authority of God's King Manifested, which do not contain miracles. The first is chapter 8, verse 18 to 22, and the second is chapter 9, from 9 to 17. The first in um, Matthew 8, 18 to 22, is the two occasions when um, a scribe came up and said, I will follow you wherever you go, and Jesus said, I haven't got a place to put my head on. That's what he said. I haven't got a place to put my head on. So in other words, if you follow me, don't expect too much. You must be like me. You must follow me. If you say, I will follow uh, you, do you know what that entails? That's what the Lord Jesus was virtually saying. And then again, another disciple came and said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me, let the dead bury the dead. Very hard saying for some. But what the Lord Jesus was really saying was this, if your heart is in family matters and other things, there's no point in following me. Divine authority again. Follow me. Then if you turn to chapter 9, verse from 9 to uh, 17, um, he saw Matthew sitting at the, um, uh, in the tax office and he just said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Simple as that. Divine authority again. Just said, follow me. And he rose up and followed. The next two um, incidents, one is to do with the Pharisees. They complained very bitterly that the Lord Jesus was evidently so at home with um, sinners and tax collectors. And they couldn't understand it. And the Lord said they were to go away and think what the text means. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, this is the beginning, the first shots in the war, if you like, uh, to put it that way, between the Lord Jesus and the Pharisees. This, these were the first warning shots fired. Go and uh, find out what the text means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And of course the next is about the bridegroom and the Lord Jesus is really saying that he is the bridegroom now he's come uh, he's there and it's no good as it were patching up something old. You put new wine into new skins. Really virtually what everyone was saying was why don't you follow the old traditions? Why don't you put this new life and this new teaching and this new way into the old system and into the old setup? But the Lord Jesus was saying, no, new wine into new wine skins. And if only church history had been built on that principle, it would have been very, very different indeed. Now the second subsection here is from verse 35 of chapter 9 to um, verse 42 of chapter 10. And I have entitled it, The Authority of God's King Delegated. 
the authority of God's king delegated. First we see the authority of God's king manifested. Now we see the authority of God's king delegated. Now again, this is extremely important. We have here in this section the delegation of Christ's authority, the, the authority of the kingdom of heaven. Mark chapter 10, verse 1, um, sorry, not Mark, Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 to 4. He called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity. Then the names of the twelve apostles are given to us. The delegation of the authority of God's king. Now it is very hard to get away from this, that the law, in choosing the twelve apostles, the Lord deliberately um, made it to correspond to the twelve patriarchs. And Matthew, above all, who was writing to Jewish uh, Christians, I'm sure underlines this simple little point. We have here the new Israel. In fact, we have in seed form, in germ form, we have the church here. The new Israel of God. Here is the Lord Jesus, and he is choosing the twelve. So in the city at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, we discover that it has the names of the twelve apostles on the gates, and the names of the twelve tribes, of twelve patriarchs on the foundations. The save the elect people of God from both the old and the new covenant together. We cannot escape, I think. From that, that when the Lord Jesus chose the twelve, um, there was a correspondence to the twelve patriarchs. Now, another point I want you to make it is, is this. It is the same authority as Christ's that is given to them. This is a most important point. When the Lord Jesus delegates authority, it is not inferior, but he is delegating his authority to others. The Roman Catholic Church has made a tremendous amount of this and has driven it to such an extreme and so legalized it and formalized it that it has in fact become error. But nevertheless, we can go just to the opposite extreme and, and overthrow something which is extremely precious. And that is this, that God's authority, in fact, the, the authority of God's king is delegated to the church, first to the twelve here, we have the twelve um, apostles. Now if you look in verse 8, you will read this. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you receive without pay, give without pay. In other words, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus was doing. It is extraordinary that he said to them they were to raise the dead. As if to drive this point right home to the farthest extremity, he could. This authority that was his, he now was delegating to them. In other words, it was not inferior authority. It was exactly and precisely the same authority. But he was delegating it. In other words, they were acting for him. Now, 
Has that authority remained with the Twelve Apostles? We all are absolutely agreed in this, that the Twelve Apostles uh, occupy a unique place. That we all, I think, agree. But we have to go further, I think, than that, and to say this, that here we must see a delegation of the authority of God's King to the Church. And that when it was dele first delegated when, to, to the Twelve, they were acting for the Church. There was no Church then. Here were the Twelve, the Twelve Apostles, the foundation of the Church. But we are told that, in fact, the Church is built upon this foundation of the Apostles and Prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This authority is transmitted, and dear child of God, you must not think that there is no such thing as divine authority today. Just because we live in a church which is ruined and divided and superficial and worldly and powerless doesn't mean that the authority of God's King is in abeyance. It is not. <coughs> And wherever the Holy Spirit is free, the anointing comes again. God still apprehends men. And I think one of the most remarkable and interesting studies is to try and discover in church history where the anointing has gone. Down through the years of church history. There has always been, of course, authority. And of course there, are, there is a sense in which there are measures of authority. There's apostolic authority. There is the authority of elders in the local church. There is the authority of the church acting as the church. All these things. In a sense, I suppose apostolic authority is more individual. It's more tied to the person. But nevertheless, get back to the point. It is in the last and final analysis. It is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself as God's king that is delegated to the apostles and then from the apostles to the whole church. Let me put it in another way if it might help you. This authority is ours in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is our divine authority. We shall do mightier works than even he did. Did he not say it? Now, it does not necessarily mean just physical things. It doesn't just mean casting out spirits or cutting off spirits, tremendous as that is. There are things in the spiritual realm which touch the Father's extremities of eternity, which are to be dealt with by the divine authority of God's King delegated to us. In other words, the exercise of the authority which is in the name of Jesus. My dear friend, you must not just think that because here you see someone healed or there you see someone in their right mind, that that is everything. To get one stone really built in the church requires more power than to heal ten lepers. Truly. Truly. Physical things. Oh, I mustn't use the word. I, I, I couldn't think of it uh, on, on Tuesday. Uh, and, and I used the word chicken feed. But really and truthfully, these other things are just chicken feed. God can do them. Why, that silly little body of yours... God can do anything with it if he wants to do anything. If he wants to, can do anything. 
anything with it. Anything at all. There is nothing that God cannot do. Anything he wants to do with that body of yours, he can do instantly. Absolutely instantly. So don't, uh, don't think he can't. And don't think that you're too difficult for God Almighty. You're no problem. He can do it instantly if he wishes to. You have the faith. God has the ability. He can do it. But don't you think that that little body of yours is everything? My dear friend, the biggest miracle of all will take place one day to every single one of us in this room. Either when we've been mouldering in the grave and our very flesh has gone to dust, we shall be raised incorruptible. Think of it. Think of it. And some of you think God can't heal your poor old bodies. Why, when you've rotted and gone back to the earth and fed the trees and given something back to the earth with one great word from God, every molecule that made up your being will be reconstituted. Not one hair of your head will perish. Think of Think of it. And you know, that's only the end. Your salvation was a much bigger thing than that, believe me. That's just, again, the outward display. Your body can give that back to you. So don't think that, the, that healing or anything like that is, 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 a, is a, such a big thing. It isn't. There are other things that are closer to God's heart. That's why sometimes he lets, leaves us sometimes to suffer. Because uh, there, there is more gained by going a dark way for him than would be gained if we were healed instantly. So sometimes God's greatest saints are left to go a hard way because God is getting something. Now I'm wondering, and I must come back. You see, the fact of the matter is we have divine authority and it is in the name, it is, we can exercise it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me put it another way. It is the head, the anointed king, working through his body. It's as simple as that. It is the, the anointed king working through his body. It's as simple as that. It is the authority of God's king delegated, delegated, expressed and displayed through us. Now I want you also to note if you look at the chapter 9 and verse <coughs> 36 that behind this authority lies compassion. Verse 35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every infirmity. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. I think there's something else that needs to be said about divine authority. It is not a mechanical thing. And it is not an exhibitionist thing. And it is not a dictatorial thing, as if we can lord it over God's flock and think that we are something. It is none of those things. Divine authority was always meant to spring from divine compassion. 
And is it not an extraordinary thing that the Lord Jesus always exercised authority when his heart was touched? Again and again it says he looked, he saw, and he acted. Divine compassion. Oh, I'm so thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father is not one who is not touched with the feeling of our infirmities. How dreadful it would be if we had some kind of mechanical automaton at the right hand of God. A kind of push-button, spiritually perfect machine. Gave all the correct answers. Came up with all the correct things, you know. Did all the correct things. How awful it would be. How fearful it would be. But instead at the right hand of God, the Father is one who is full of compassion. And touched with the feeling of our infirmities. So that when we appeal to him, his heart responds as well as his head. It is not only power that acts for us, but compassion. Oh, that I think is tremendous. It's not sentimentality either. Then in Matthew chapter 10, from verse 5 to verse 39, we have the principles of kingship or authority enumerated. For we must remember that here in this chapter 10, we have the second of the great discourses in the gospel according to Matthew. And it is a great discourse on the proclamation of the kingdom. Proclamation of the kingdom. How it should be proclaimed. And we have here um, enunciated the principles of kingship. What is kingship according to God? What is divine authority according to God? What are the principles that lie behind it? Because, you know, we've got such a false conception of authority. We have such a false conception of kingship. We have such a false conception of power. What are the principles behind it? Well, here we have, as I see it, three principles. The first is this. Absolute dependence upon God. God never delegates authority. Real authority real authority, unless there's absolute dependence upon him. It is a fearful thing to be given authority if that person is not dependent upon the Lord. Now listen to the dependence that is required. Listen to it. Verse 9. Take no gold, nor silver, nor copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the labourer deserves his food. My word, that leaves you with nothing. Think of it. No gold, no silver, no copper. Not even a few coppers. Do without the notes and the silver, but at least we could take a few coppers just in case we got into trouble. But no, not a single thing. No bag for your journey, just think of it. No bag even for the journey. No two tunics, nor two tunics not a change, nor sandals, nor a staff to lean on when you get tired. Oh, what kind of service is this? The laborer deserves his food. Now, there is trust. You see, the Lord's not saying you won't have these things, but he doesn't want you to get them. In other words, he doesn't want you to become self-sufficient and self-reliant. He wants you to be utterly dependent upon himself. Dependent upon him for everything. He'll provide the money for you. He'll give you the staff. He'll give you the tunics. He'll give you the sandal. He'll do everything for you. You just depend on him. This is the principle of divine authority. 
The Lord is jealous that we should not get anything ourselves and not be able to lean too much upon um, ourselves. Then again, it says you must book up at a hotel. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay with him until you depart. <coughs> you see? No getting Thomas Crooks to do everything for you beforehand so that uh, you know the hotel you're going to and you're certain of a bed for the night. You see? It's absolute dependence. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord Jesus means us necessarily to, Im to, to slavishly obey just the regulation, but what is the principle behind it? The principle surely is absolute dependence upon the Lord. No self-reliance. No self-sufficiency. Here you've got it again. Verse 19. Listen to this. When they deliver you up, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. How many of us can't open our mouth in a prayer meeting? We're so afraid. Let alone when we're hauled and before some antichrist court. Dragged before them, listen to what it says. Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear testimony before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you up, be not anxious about what you shall say. Don't sort of sweat it out in the cell. Be, what shall I say? How shall I say it now? When you stand up, it will be given. Now, this was marvelously exemplified in two people in, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. One was Stephen and the other was Paul. You know, when, when Stephen stood up and preached that tremendous sermon, it was the, it was the first great note that, that was to be continued by the Apostle Paul. It was given him. And later on, when, when Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin, he was also given the words to say. Now, that means trust. Again, see... Absolute dependence upon the Lord even for what you shall say. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now here you've got the first principle of divine kingship or divine authority. When God delegates authority, absolute dependence upon himself. Now the second thing is absolute, oh by the way one further thing I would like to say for those who have ears to hear, verse 16, behold I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. My dear friend, do underline that. I am quite sure that if the communists came here tomorrow, half of us, half of us, uh, would be mutilated within a few months by the stupidity of the Christians. It says, beware of men. Be on your guard, in other words. Uh, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. What does it mean? Don't be naive. They come thundering on the front door and say, have you got anyone hiding here? Don't say, yes, we've got 50 under the floorboards. Because you think, oh, I must be truthful. Must be. That's the kind of thing that's stupid. You must be like Rahab, who was blessed when she said, no, I haven't got anyone here. Search the whole place. She's got them under the flax. All, all two of them. Tucked away there beautifully. And the Lord blessed her for her faithfulness. 
because you, you see, um, sometimes some Christians get a little bit tied up on this kind of thing. Uh, I, I realise it provides some problem. I say for those who've got ears to hear, let them hear. So it doesn't mean that you can be dishonest with the income tax returns and all that kind of thing. <laughs> be wise or certain, harmless or dumb. It doesn't mean that. It means you must be scrupulously honest there. But when it comes to things like these other things, well, you must be wise as serpents and be on your guard. Mm-hmm. All right. Then the second principle is absolute faithfulness to God. Verse 26 absolute faithfulness to God from verse 26 to verse (coughs) 33 this is an amazing uh, part listen to it so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known what I tell you in the dark utter in the light what you hear whispered that is by him proclaim upon the housetops absolute faithfulness oh sometimes it costs us doesn't it to be faithful what the Lord tells us in the dark to say it out in the light. What the Lord whispers in our ear to shout it from the housetop. My absolute faithfulness. And then he goes on as if to reassure us, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, that's the fear, isn't it, about faithfulness. We're frightened to death of people who can injure us if we're faithful. The Lord says, no, the principle of divine authority is fearlessness. Absolute fearlessness. Speak the truth. Speak the truth even if you die. The devil can't get hold of your body. And what does the Lord say about it? Well, he says to this about the sparrows. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's will. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. In other words, don't you worry too, uh, too much about it. If through faithfulness to the Lord you die, your hairs are all numbered. Every one of them will come back. In the redemption body, every one of them. Take courage, some of you. So, uh, <laughs> anyone, anywhere. Absolute faithfulness. If we are absolutely faithfulness to faithful to the Lord, we have nothing to fear. But now look at it the other way. If we are not faithful, we have everything to fear. For listen to what the Lord says. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I don't think that means that we lose our salvation. But I do believe that it means that the Lord Jesus says, No, Father, not him, not her. There can be no inheritance. I saved them and they will be saved. But they denied. They have lost the inheritance. It's a serious thing. And uh, just because you've denied once doesn't mean to say that you can't find your way back to the Lord. For there stands before us the story of Peter, the history of Peter, who denied his Lord with oaths and became the first apostle of the Church of God. So take courage even there. The third principle we find from verse 34 to verse 39 and it is absolute devotion for God. Um, Listen to it. He that does not love uh, he who loves, verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life 
will lose it. An unalterable law. He who finds his life loses it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. It is an absolutely unchangeable law that if you hang on to your life, you lose it, turns to ashes and misery, let it go for his sake, and you find it. Absolute devotion. Have you ever found anyone absolutely devoted to the Lord who is miserable? I'll tell you one thing. If you find anyone who seems to be absolutely devoted to the Lord and miserable, they're not devoted to the Lord. It's as simple as that. For those who are really devoted to the Lord are the most joyful people. They suffer, yes. They know something of the darkness and they know something of the cross. For they've taken up their, the cross and following and are following him. But my dear friend, they have life. They have peace. They have joy. You can see it in their face. So don't <coughs> ever get away uh, from that. It's as simple as that. Absolute devotion. And then in this, the last part of this subsection we find this. From verse 40 to verse 42, just note it. The promised reward to anyone who helps those representing the kingdom. It's amazing. Just give a cup of water to a disciple of the kingdom and you'll get your reward. If you, um, if you receive a prophet, you shall have a prophet's reward. And if you receive a righteous man, you shall get a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I said, he shall not lose his reward. It's really quite remarkable, isn't it? That the Lord should look upon it like this. Now, the third of the uh, subsections here, and this we've entitled The Authority of the King, I have entitled The Controversy Over the Authority of God's King. That is from chapter 11, verse 1, to verse 50 of chapter 12. And I believe that the key to this whole section is found in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Now, listen to this. This is the key, I believe, to this section which I've entitled The Controversy Over the Authority of God's King. But, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When God heals someone, when God casts out an evil spirit, when God provides money, as he has done, in this miraculous way, when God builds two saints together, and that's a bigger miracle than even the provision of money, when God does any of these things, it is the presence of the kingdom of heaven. Nothing less. It is the presence of the kingdom. If by the Spirit of God these things are done, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
It's there. There. You may not see it with the eye, but it's there. It's present. The kingdom of God has moved in. And the authority of God's king has been manifested in a situation and touched something and done something. If by the Spirit of God. It is interesting, isn't it, the Lord Jesus um, uh, really, I can't think of the word, but the, the Lord Jesus says that his ministry, in this way, his authority is exercised by the Spirit of God. If I, how much more do we need the Spirit of God? If I, by the Spirit of God, that's the key, I, by the Spirit of God, cast out then the kingdom of God is coming. There you see, dear, dear child of God, the, the, the kingdom of God isn't eating and drinking. It is righteousness, joy and peace in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, joy, peace in the Holy Ghost. That's the, that is the kingdom of God. So the presence of the kingdom of God is that the Lord Jesus is exercising his authority in our midst by the Spirit. And that doesn't mean it's confined to any one thing, but it means that all the problems and everything else that faces the whole satanic front is faced by the Lord Jesus Christ in his people. Well, now, let's just have a look at, at this. The controversy over Christ, over his authority, starts to rage now. You will remember I said the warning shots have been fired before, but now it starts to rage. Now, I want you to note um, all the account of, of Matthew in this matter. First of all, he tells us in chapter 11, from verse 1 to 19, he tells us about John the Baptist's doubts. Even John the Baptist doubted. Of course, he was in prison. He was waiting to be executed in one sense didn't know what really was going to happen to him. Here is the controversy. Even he doubts. So he sends some of his disciples secretly to the Lord Jesus. Are you the Messiah? Or do we wait for another? Doubts of John the Baptist. Then we had the Galilean town's impenitence. All these uh, towns around the Lake of Galilee, which was the Lord's own uh, home country, um, they didn't repent. Tremendous works were done in them, in Capernaum, in Chorazin, in Bethsaida. Great works were done in them. Tremendous things. The dead were raised. The dumb spoke. The devil possessed. Were dis the, 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 the demons were cast out of them. Lepers were cleansed. All kinds of things happened, but they didn't repent. The Lord Jesus said, do you know that if these works had been done in Gentile Tyre and Sidon, they would have gone down like ninepins calling upon the Lord in repentance. But in these cities, impenitence. And then when we come to chapter 12, uh, from 1 to 45, it is the Pharisees' um, growing anger and spite which we have recorded there. Especially verse 10 of chapter 12. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. It was their spite. Verse 14, But the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him how to destroy him. It's the beginning of the controversy, of the real controversy has started now. 
And verse um, 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. He does it by the devil. <laughs> it's an extraordinary way of looking at it. Um, he throws out uh, devils by the devil, they said. Well, there we are. On the other hand, Christ is set forth as the fulfillment of all, of, of all the Old Testament prophets and of the ministry of John the Baptist. If you go back to chapter 11 from verse 1, well, from verse 11 to 19, the Lord Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament and he is the fulfillment of the ministry of John the Baptist, who is the greatest that has been born a woman up to that point, he says. Then in chapter 12, verse 8, we're told that the, the Lord Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you know, when you take the Old Testament and just find out what it says about the Sabbath alone, and then suddenly you find that the Lord Jesus puts himself above the Sabbath and says he's Lord of the Sabbath, it means a tremendous amount. Go on a little further, and we find that we are told in chapter 12, 39 to 41, that a greater than Jonah is here. It is beautifully put in the New Bible. It's put like this, something greater than Jonah is here. It's very interesting. Not just someone, but something. It's not just the person, but the kingdom. Something greater than Jonah is present. It was himself but more than just he personally, but all that he represented, all that he was bringing in, greater than Jonah. Now, you take Jonah, and Jonah is the prophet, you know, who, who stands in the Old Testament for, for, for God's concern for the Gentile. And here is a greater than Jonah, the one who was going to bring the Gentiles into the salvation of God. You and me. Greater than Jonah. And then we find that he also says in verse 42 of chapter 12, something greater than Solomon is here. Now think of Solomon in all his glory. Think of Solomon. He is the, he is as it were, the high water mark of the Old Testament in one sense. Then the temple of God was completed and Israel had boundaries. Her boundaries were pushed further afield than at any other time in the history of God's people. Solomon in all his glory and power. And the Lord Jesus said, something greater than Solomon. Something greater than the temple? Yes. Something greater than Solomon? Something greater than the Davidic throne? something greater. And then I want you also to note that it is the authority of Christ, the to note the authority of Christ to reveal the Father. In chapter 11, from verse 25 to 30, especially verse 27, listen to it. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The authority of Christ to reveal the Father. Has the Father been revealed to you? Has God the Father been revealed to you? Then you know it was the Lord Jesus 
who chose to do it. He exercised his authority to reveal the Father to you. It was the Lord Jesus that, that, that as it were, sent the Holy Spirit to touch our eyes and touch our heart and touch our understanding so that we might begin to see the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. To whom is he revealed? He is revealed to those who are childlike in spirit. Verse 25, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understand, and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was thy gracious will. The Father is revealed to those of a child who are childlike in spirit. Now, I don't think we'll go beyond this point, the authority of the king tonight, but I want just to say this, as we draw this division to a close, I want you to note, and this is very important indeed in my estimation, very important, I want you to note that miracles, signs, wonders, powers, do not necessarily convert. And they do not necessarily establish and they do not necessarily cause a person to grow. <coughs> there is a holy, false and pernicious idea that these things convert people and establish us and cause us to grow. They do not. And nowhere in the Word of God will you be taught that either. Indeed, we're taught quite the opposite. And here in this passage, we are taught the exact opposite. This very passage which teaches us that we are to expect these things and to look to, to God that we may exercise the authority that is in the name of Jesus is the very passage that warns us that these things do not necessarily convert people. My dear friend, the Lord Jesus Christ did mighty works in some of these cities and the people who were converted, who were they? Do you know how many there were at the end of the Lord's three years? One hundred and twenty. One hundred and twenty. And they'd seen the dead raised, and they'd seen the lepers cleansed, and they'd seen the dumb speak, and they saw the blind see, and they saw the paralyzed walk. Isn't it extraordinary? How is it possible that you have an Ananias and Sapphira right in the midst of a church that saw mighty <coughs> things and they themselves had witnessed the day of Pentecost. Why was it they weren't caused to grow? The Lord Jesus puts it like this, there was a rich man and a poor man, Dives and Lazarus. And when they were dead, uh, the rich man was in torment and he cried out because he saw in the bosom of Abraham he saw Lazarus. He cried out and said, oh, let him come. Let him just give me some water, only water. It's rather interesting, he was still looking upon him as a servant. Poor little old beggar that used to lie at the gate. Let him come and give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty, I'm in torment. And Abraham said, I'm very sorry, it's not possible to be done. Or the angel said it, because there's a gulf between you and us. 
Then the uh, rich man said a very interesting thing. He said, well, then look, send him to my brothers. Because if they see him, they will believe. Do you know what the answer was? No, he said. They will not even believe if a man is raised from the dead. They had the scriptures. If they don't believe those, they were. This is exactly and precisely what's happened. And the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. Many don't believe it. But we know he's raised from the dead. We know it in our experience. Isn't this an extraordinary thing? Now, you must not get it in your mind that I'm talking against miracles and powers and signs. Once I am not at all. I've spent this evening, I hope, underlining that these things are, are, are evidence of the authority of Christ. What I'm trying to point out to you is that they do not necessarily convert people. Why is it? Why, I can give you examples of this, but it may be too painful. And I could give you examples of this within our own family here, this part of the family, of people we know who are still not converted and had seen miracles take place before their very eyes. And furthermore, they acknowledge those miracles as miracles and are still not converted. And there are others who see marvellous things, but they don't grow. And they're not necessarily established. Now, why? What is it? Well, you see, these things may all be right, and they all have their place, but they don't cause us to grow. When I was first saved, I had many visions. They didn't cause me to grow. But uh, um, uh, what does cause us to grow? This is what causes us to grow. Relationship to Christ. It is the only thing that makes a person grow. In fact, the other thing can in the end halt a person's belief. And real growth is a blessed thing to get related to the Lord Jesus and have the other as well. So that you're really related to him and growing and being established in him and you're not moved by these things. That's what we want, isn't it? What is relationship? Relationship to Christ is essential from beginning to end. Here it is in chapter 11, verse 28 and 29. Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that extraordinary that that passage comes right in the middle of all this controversy? All these great works and signs and miracles on the authority of Christ. Suddenly we had this. Two things. His yoke, his burden. His yoke, his burden. His yoke means we're yoked to him. We have to walk in step or the yoke uh, does damage to us. To our backs. To our necks. Does real damage if we're out of step. We must be... We must be equally yoked. His burden, it's light, because he is bearing it. But we are yoked to him. And then we have it again in chapter 12, verse 46 to verse 50. And this again is quite remarkable. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven 
is my brother and sister and mother. Do you want to be the mother of the Lord Jesus? Would you like to be the sister of the Lord Jesus? Would you like to be the brother of the Lord Jesus? You do his will. You get into a right relationship with him. And he says, you're my mother. Isn't that beautiful? You're my mother. You're my sister. You're my brother. You see, it's not those other things that count in the end, dear child of God. They may be the evidence of the presence of the authority of the kingdom of heaven. But in the end, what does God want? Do you think that God just wants powers and signs and miracles and mighty things like that? As if God is interested in firework displays? Just doing great things? Throwing them? Why, my dear friend, if God wants to, he could do thousands of things for all eternity just to keep us all happy. He's not the least bit interested in that, and don't you ever think he is? God is not some great stage manager. He's not some great sort of proprietor of a kind of eternal divine circus. Keeps all entertained forever after. God has a heart. And God's heart longs for communion. Union and communion. Longs for a divine and eternal relationship. Longs that you might become mother to him. Sister to him. Brother to him. Longs that you and I might know what it is to be yoked to him. The son of God. And to bear his burden. Don't you think when you, if you really go home and think about it all, when you sit down and just shut the door and shut everything else and just think for a few moments, don't you think that if that were really to dawn upon you, it would thrill you more than anything else in the whole of this world? Just go home and think. Does the Lord want me to be his sister? His mother? His brother? Isn't that more wonderful than anything else in the whole world? Oh, yes, it is. And may God so establish us that like the early church, we, we take his yoke and we bear his birth and we do the will of his Father who is in heaven and we see mighty works and see powers and signs and miracles as well so that the whole thing is in balance and we can go on with the Lord together like that to see the authority of God's King not only manifested in, in our Lord Jesus but delegated to us and it doesn't matter what the controversy is the Lord uh, is able to face it a little later on, next week, Lord willing, we shall see the story of the Lord Jesus walking on the sea. And it is extraordinary that it comes just at the point when the controversy becomes the greatest. And I'm sure it was just, it is, it has been, it was, he did it in order that forever after, you and I might know that the Lord Jesus has ability to rise on the storm. He just rides on the storm. And furthermore, he can make Peter do it. So in other words, what he was saying was, I can ride on the storm and I'll make my church ride on the storm. There's no need to get 
frightened about it. I'll do it, and you will do it. Isn't that wonderful? Of course it is. The first thing the Lord Jesus ever did, he stood up and rebuked the wind and everything, and it was all a calm. But the second time he never did anything of the kind, he just walked. And Peter had so learnt his lesson, he said, Lord, let me come to you. Let me walk on the water too. He didn't say, Lord, 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 tell it all to be quiet. Get it calm, Lord. He'd learnt his lesson. He, he knew that what the Lord really wanted was, he, he not only wanted to walk on the water, but he wanted his people to walk as well. It's not just that he wants them walking on the water. There are far more difficult storms than that kind of storm, otherwise we could all go practicing down on the River Thames. <laughs> That's not what the Lord wants. What he wants are those storms that are far more terrible and far more devastating. Those things that we don't know where they come from or how they come, but they come. To be able to have that ability to go on walking through them steadily. The Lord can do it, can't he? But we'll leave that for next week. Let's pray, shall we? <coughs> Lord, oh, how we, how we long, all of us, that we were rightly related to thee. Thy yoke upon us, thy burden being borne, the will of thy Father being done. Our Lord Jesus, thou who art so great, who, thou who hast fulfilled everything and surpassed everything, Thou who art the greater than Jonah and the greater than Solomon, the Lord of the Sabbath. Oh, we would pray, beloved Lord, that we might be rightly related to Thee and might know something of that authority of Thine expressed and exercised in and through us. Lord, may this be so, we pray. May we know it in an ever deeper and more real way. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.